0: Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what's going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. Thank you for tuning in to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. I'm Joe Gray. With me here today, this evening for me, this morning for him is Have I Been Pwned's own Troy Hunt Troy is a plural site instructor. He's a regional director for Microsoft and an MVP. He has been a software consultant for some time. And as I mentioned, he is the founder of HaveIBeenPwned.com. He contributes regularly to OWASP and, from what I can tell, is very heavy in the .NET framework. Hello, Troy.
1: G'day, Joe. That all sounds uh, pretty spot on, mate. Well done.
0: Awesome. Uh, your LinkedIn is accurate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent. So, well, that's good because I really touch it. So that's nice not to have to change it very much. Exactly.
0: So uh, if you don't mind, uh, fill in any blanks uh, about you and what you're working on right now as opposed to in addition to Have I Been Pwned and other projects, and then we'll break into the news.
1: Sure. Well, uh, as as the audience can probably hear, I am also Australian, so uh, there, there's that too. That's that. Uh, that means that uh, my bandwidth is terrible, but my beaches are awesome. So I kind of get a bit of a double-edged sword there. It means I'm also on the other side of the world to everyone else. So I, I do a lot of travel. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time overseas. Probably a little bit too much time at the moment. Uh, but I do a lot of uh, workshops for. Organisations mostly teaching uh, developers and people building software uh, how to uh, hopefully not get it wrong, and I, I do a lot of travelling around and speaking at various events. So I'll uh, I'll be off to Europe again uh, in a few weeks, doing doing the things there for a couple of weeks, and then uh, then returning home to my nice sunny home here. Awesome. So in in terms of news, the big headlines today: uh,
0: President Obama named a CISO for the United States and Intel sold McAfee, uh, starting out with the Intel, because it's kind of the the easier of the two, in my opinion. Uh, what are your thoughts, your initial thoughts on Intel selling McAfee?
1: To, to be honest, most of the news I've seen has been around John McAfee having a copyright dispute or, or a trademark dispute over his name. There's, there's something about John. He seems to be able to make headlines, <laughs> often for all the wrong reasons. Um, look I mean I don't know in in terms of them selling it I guess these are the sort of assets that are often acquired and disposed of for various corporate reasons I'm I'm not sure that it's really going to have any sort of fundamental impact on the landscape I think McAfee as a brand is is probably not what it once was uh, some time ago anyway so uh, other than the interesting sort of uh, disputes with the the charismatic co-founder or charismatic founder as it was I'm not sure it really makes a lot of difference
0: and, and that definitely makes sense. And just like you said, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of McAfee, because you know conventional antivirus—it's not none of it is really what it used to be. The semantic, the Kaspersky, even Avast, malwarebytes—all of them—they're not what they used to be. Especially when you have competitors out there like Carbon Black, Silence, Sentinel One, and uh, CrowdStrike and their line of products. So. Could we be seeing antivirus right off into the sunset? Maybe. I doubt it.
1: No, I think we'll just see it change. And look, I mean, over the last few years, we've seen this shift away from the traditional sort of signature base to user behavioural analytics and this sort of thing, which I guess is just a reflection of the, the changing security landscape. So for for something like McAfee, it's, look, I mean, it's kind of the incumbent. They, they have to adapt and change. And maybe this is part of a reflection of, of a changing industry. Exactly and it's ironic that you
0: mentioned user behavior analytics because that's one of the new absolute big buzzwords that everyone's trying to sell in terms of services. Uh, I was at a local isSA meeting and there was a presentation uh, provided by Rapid Seven selling their user behavior analytics products so it's it's kind of how it's funny how things just kind of operate on a cyclic uh, routine so that you know what is popular at one point and relevant. Dies off for a little while, and then it comes back a completely different way.
1: Yeah, and I, I think we're sort of at a point where doing this this UBA sort of stuff is is kind of inevitable because we we've reached this stage where the signatures can't keep up with the rates of which malicious software is being written, and we're at the same time sort of making enough inroads in terms of being able to analyze what, what is a what is a norm for for the way uh, an individual machine or an individual user operates uh, in a network and being able to establish baselines and norms and then identify deviations from those makes a lot of sense. And I I think sort of the big remaining question is how effective and reliably can we do that because a lot of this now becomes a a much more sort of heuristic uh, behaviour as opposed to simply saying uh, here is a pattern. If it matches the pattern, then we've got a problem, which is a very kind of explicit result. So look, I think really it's still early days in that area, but that certainly seems to be where the ball's moving to. I tend to agree with you there. I, certain industries,
0: like the defense sector, which is where most of my experience lies, they mandate certain antivirus to be used, such as McAfee. And I think that's really going to keep them in place. But I, I foresee the the scope changing drastically soon just to kind of build upon what they're doing already. We have a lot more to worry about than just malware these days. Uh, we have to worry about our email addresses ending up on your website.
1: Well, look, I wouldn't worry about that. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, so, so there's, there's that. You, you might be able to do something about your passwords uh, being usable by someone who breaks in and gets your email addresses, but I have accepted uh, that my email address will be on there. I, I had my seventh appearance on there recently, and uh, that is just the nature of the web today.
0: Uh, I couldn't agree more. So to shift gears, something major that came from the news in the United States was President Obama tapped retired Air Force Brigadier General uh, Gregory uh, Tauhill, I believe. Uh, If he is listening or anyone knows the proper pronunciation of his last name, I apologize if I butchered it. But he's been tapped to become the United States' first cybersecurity chief, basically the CISO for the country. Coming on the heels of some major data breaches like the uh, electoral databases and the DNC hack and then, of course, Hillary Clinton's emails. Uh, what long-term effects do you see coming with this as an outsider to the United States?
1: Well, look, I guess the first thing is it's it's sort of an interesting acknowledgement of how important uh, online security is. You see, see, I'm resisting saying cyber because I know everyone wants to say cyber. But it's, uh, it, it's interesting. Just a couple of days ago, I was, I was watching a bit of um, Obama's speech at, at the G20, Uh, and he was talking about the significance of uh, cyber, his word, not mine, uh, and sort of recognising that that this is a really... uh, In fact, he was sort of phrasing it almost in in the way that we would phrase uh, traditional arms, where he was saying, look, you know, we don't want to get into this situation where we have nation-states building up offensive capabilities to exploit each other, which I had to laugh at a little bit, because this is the guy who presided over the era of Stuxnet as well. Uh, So, you know, there's Stuxnet.
0: Yeah, Stuxnet, Flame, Flame
1: Yuduku,
0: know, yeah. the TAO, um, you know, yeah. not to even get started on Shadow Brokers, he's got the runs yeah. on the board.
1: Uh, but it was it was sort of an interesting, uh, very kind of public acknowledgement that uh, that, that this sort of online nation-state uh, security threat is is a serious thing, and I, I think appointing a CSO for a country, for for want of a better term, is a really interesting. A reflection of that and I guess it, I'm almost a little bit torn because on the one hand you go wow like stuff's getting serious right you know we've got countries hacking other countries and, and infiltrating critical infrastructure and things like that on the other hand for those of us working in security it's a, it's a great endorsement of how important this industry is and uh, how significant uh, these threats are becoming so I think on, on balance, it, it's a very good thing for for people like uh, you and I, but it's it's kind of a little bit scary as well.
0: Yeah, I, I would, no no argument here. Um, to kind of caveat from a, a poll that I saw floating around on Twitter as a result of one of my previous podcasts, do you believe that uh, election databases and polling electronic
1: polling mechanisms should be considered critical infrastructure? It's interesting, and it just sort of comes on the back of these allegations of, of Russia influencing elections and, you know, democratic processes as well. And I guess the broader question here is, is is there there's some sort of uh, upside for an adversary in, in infiltrating and possibly in, impacting election results? And, you know, geez, when stakes are that high and when we're talking about a, a country like the US where uh, the, the government in power is going to have a pretty pretty fundamental impact on on, uh, national security and policies and that sort of thing, I can see the attraction. Uh, I I guess the question is always going to come back with this electronic voting argument is can we do it in a reliable, secure way that still protects anonymity and on balance is this thing going to be a better proposition than what we have at present? And and I think that's a really important distinction too, this this sort of on balance thing. So when it's all said and done, holistically, are we going to be better off? And I think that there are are aspects uh, where things are going to be worse for us and there are aspects where things are going to be better. But uh, I'm just not quite sure that we're we're yet at that point where we can do this reliably and consistently enough, particularly given the number of failures we've seen in government systems in recent times doing similar things. I
0: I certainly agree there. And. I mean, the biggest concern I have would be at the state level with these, uh, with the registration databases, the amount of personally identifiable information that's that's in it, and the fact that it's really not subjected to any security framework or regulatory compliance. It's you know FISMA or, granted, it's not healthcare information or HIPAA, you know that kind of stuff or PCI, whatever. It's not subject to anything. It's just there. And I I see that as a major concern. I'm not necessarily sure that I would like to see the federal government take over states' uh, voter registration databases, but I would like to see a little bit more oversight perhaps from Homeland Security or someone in in that arena uh, to kind of, if nothing else, provide consulting services to the states and say, this is what you need. These are minimum security requirements that you need to meet before you accept anybody else's information to vote.
1: Yeah, but possibly. I think maybe some advisory um, position there might help. Uh, I'm just sort of thinking of, of some of the recent incidents we've seen where consumer confidence has been really rocked, uh, not necessarily by voting systems themselves, but by things that are that are either uh, perceived as being very closely related or, or do have an indirect link. And I think about things like the Philippines uh, Election Commission earlier this year, they lost 55 million records. Now, the philippines has got 110 million people and a bunch of them are children so so have a think about that in terms of the proportion of, of of the of the population that's been impacted and when we see things like that it's it's a little bit of a reminder that when systems are digitized in this way we face different risks uh, to to some of the ones that we do whilst they're a very manual process and even down here in australia we just had uh, last month we had our, our five yearly census where we normally all sort of fill out forms and and send them into the government uh, in the mail and we we talk about our income brackets and religious beliefs and all sorts of other things. And the government decided to uh, put all of this online and uh, consequently got DDoSed off the face of the earth uh, via a very, very, very small DDoS. It was only about two gigabits uh, and really just rocked consumer confidence in the ability of a government to stand up a, a formal system for collecting data from citizens. And I think when we see these things, it it just sort of erodes further the confidence that people have in the ability of governments in general uh, to stand up systems like that. And that extends through to voting systems as well.
0: I I remember uh, Patrick Gray on the Risky Business podcast talking about the census DDoS attack and how the, the Australian government had actually paid, I believe it was IBM for DDoS protection, but just didn't use it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah there's there's a bunch of interesting angles to that so it it sounds like um one part of the problem was whoever had done the the load testing it it sort of worked out that they're never going to need to receive more than something like uh I think they're saying like 60,000 form submissions over the period of of, of a minute or, or something which was just an arbitrarily low number which which would definitely not handle peak load um uh, which was one piece of it, and then it sounds like DDoS protection, which was offered by an upstream provider, was um, was discounted. And then there was a hardware failure, and then there was a false positive on an intrusion detection system somewhere. And the whole thing was just a comedy of errors, even down to the TTL and DNS being way too high. So when they actually wanted to shift things, it just took too long to propagate. And then they were trying to block external traffic, which included anyone who was using a DNS resolver, such as Google's, which was uh, which was not based in Australia, and you just kind of look at it and go, well, one mistake you can understand, two you can almost forgive, but when it just cascades into a series of blunders like this across multiple organizations and multiple parts of the infrastructure and the software, that's when you kind of go, look, we may not actually be ready to do really important stuff online.
0: And that that really, you know, the the one, two, three, okay, now this is becoming ridiculous, That that sounds very... Very similar to some of the attacks that we've seen here, like the Office of Personnel Management, uh, Ashley Madison, of course, it's just becoming too much of a recurring theme. It's, it, it seems as if organizations are taking the best practices, seeing them as suggestions, and then pretty much doing the exact opposite
1: of uh, the requirements. Look, you know, I'm honestly not sure that the decision is that conscious. And I was, I was really lamenting, particularly towards late last year, so, you know, getting on nearly a year ago, when we'd seen the likes of things like TalkTalk Talk in the UK, you know, major British telco. Uh, got hacked. Uh, ultimately, turns out they were hacked by 15 and 16-year-olds, so not exactly a real high bar there. Uh, this was after right. a detective had claimed it was uh, Russian Islamic cyber jihadis, uh, and that is right. the term that was used as well, which I thought was hey. kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I actually remember when uh, we covered that on the Advanced Persistent Security blog. Uh, it was right after, I believe it was Vodafone that got hit right before that.
1: Right. Uh, there, was, there was a whole there chain
0: was another- of them. Exactly. And and then right after that, speaking of 16-year-old attackers, uh, a 16-year-old was able to guess the director of the CIA's credentials here and then was able to take over some of his accounts.
1: Hey, one of the interesting things here, and this is slightly tangential, is when you look at how frequently um, children in that sort of age bracket are, you know, 16 and, and onwards teenage years, they're actually really, really effective. And and I think a large part of this is that they don't have to go to work, <laughs> you know, like they don't have to go out and earn money. They don't have to play with their kids or look after their family. They've got a lot of time on their hands. They're very curious. They're very creative. And it's it's actually we, we sort of almost say in a bit of a derogatory fashion, you know, you're teenagers hacking into websites. But I, I think that they actually have a number of things going for them that makes them much more effective than than possibly more mature adults.
0: I I fully agree. I believe that. Part of it is a a mentality of, you know, as an adult uh, working in information security or, you know, something like red teaming, you kind of rely on your experience. So it's like, "Ah, I'm not going to try that because it's always been done this way. Whereas a 16 year old doesn't have that experience to rely on and they have that genuine curiosity to see how things work. That's true. Very true. So with that being said, let's go ahead and wrap up the news section and take a quick break. And when we come back, we can talk about Have I Been Pwned and how it came about. Cool. Stay tuned. Are you looking for a place to advertise to the unique audience of IT security professionals and enthusiasts? Look no further. Advanced Persistent Security is seeking sponsors. This slot could be yours. Contact sales at advancedpersistentsecurity.net for more information. And we're back from our break. Uh, with me uh, to reiterate again is Troy Hunt of HaveIBeenPwned.com dot com fame, uh, works with Microsoft and Plural Sight, does software consulting, etc. Uh, now we're going to shift gears. We've talked about the news, Troy. How how did Have I Been Pwned come about?
1: So I originally. Back in, uh, back in 2013 sort of era, I was originally doing a lot of analysis of various data breaches, just looking at some of the trends. So, you know, like what are the most common passwords? Uh, are there any, any sort of interesting behaviours that we can identify in, in the sorts of email accounts that are there? And then the, the one that I was finding particularly interesting was to look at multiple different data breaches and see occurrences of the same uh, accounts. And, of course, you you see exactly the same sort of stuff that you'd expect, right? So you see password reuse, for example. But at the time, I was thinking, I wonder how many people are actually aware of their exposure, how many people know that they've been not just on, say, the Adobe breach, which was sort of the catalyst for me building the site, uh, but also they're on the Stratfor data breach, or they're on any number of other data breaches that we'd seen at the time. So that was part of it. And then there was this sort of parallel part, which was, Uh, I was starting to do a lot of work with um, Microsoft's Azure cloud platform and look it's always sort of fun to play with with new shiny things but there's nothing quite like actually building something functional so I decided to scratch both itches and in in fact I remember I was I was traveling for work at the time and I was I was on the on the plane to the Philippines and I I wrote a lot of it while I was on the plane and then I was sitting in the hotel there going well you know well We'll whack in a bit of table storage. We'll create a web app. And I just kind of started joining all these bits together, came up with the first implementation of it and put it out there. And and people thought it was kind of cool. And then within a very short period of time, it just started getting press coverage and getting huge volumes of traffic. And it just took on a, a life of its own that I, I kind of never expected.
0: I believe when I heard about Have I Been Pwned for the first time, I do know that it was during the actually Madison data breach. I think it's when I actually wrote the blog post for that. I'm not 100% sure where I heard. I think it may have been Brian Krebs. I, I'm not sure. But time and time again, I've I've preached to people, hey, check haveibeenpwned.com. In fact, uh, last night whenever I was teaching my introduction to computing class, I was talking to the students, and they always ask who's going to be on the podcast, and they ask what I'm going to talk about. And I told them you were going to be on, and they're like, okay, we, we don't work in tech. We don't know who he is. I was like, well, let me let me bring you up to speed. And I told them about have I been pwned in addition to, you know, your, the rest of your background and immediately a line formed at the podium for students to check their mm. email accounts in have I been pwned. Nice. And, and, and um, did they get
1: a surprise, some of them?
0: A few of them. I, there were none from Brazzers and there were none from Ashley <laughs> Madison. So uh, I was like, OK, we're good.
1: Well, you, you know, uh, for clarification too, sites like Brazzers and Ashley Madison uh, are flagged as sensitive, so they're not publicly discoverable so you can't go through there and like you can't have a line of people there just publicly checking their their exposure they've got to actually sign up to this free notification service they get an email with a nonce in it and then they click a link and it's like okay now that we know that you're you you can see everything that was on this account including the sensitive stuff
0: that makes sense which i i do have the you know i've registered my email address and where i work actually we we have Taking on the enterprise aspect of it, so I get periodic reports after the Dropbox, uh, everything came out with that. I got a report from my supervisor to go off and herd the cat, so to speak, and say, hey, your your work email account was uh, in this breach, granted it's four years ago, we know you've changed your password, you just need to be cognizant of it. If you use Mm -hmm. that password anywhere else, make sure you change it. If you have any questions about password managers, come talk to me. And I highly suggest you go to have and check your personal accounts as well.
1: Mm. So mm.
0: so I, I do kind of evangelize your product. Um cool but honestly, it's the best on the market for what we're doing, especially for the cost.
1: Yeah, go. The cost is good. <laughs> and and you know, having said that as well, that there, there are actually a lot of people that give me donations, um, particularly when when there's a big news event like the Dropbox thing last week. Uh, and and quite a number of people went to the donate page and and shouted me a a coffee or a beer or covered some of my my who is queries because I I pay for a service for that. Um, So so that's actually really nice and it's it's kind of something I never actually expected until a bunch of people were like, oh, you should have a donate link. And and I was sort of saying, but it's free. Who's going to give me money when it's free? And I've been uh, really pleasantly surprised that it it does actually seem to be something that happens a bit.
0: That's awesome. And um, I will actually get that donate link and I will prominently put it in the show notes uh, <laughs> Thanks, just to uh, pay it forward with it.
1: And, you know, for, for context as well, um, normally that the service, in all honesty, doesn't cost much to run. It's, it's not so much the infrastructure. It's, it's more a question of the time. And there's a huge time investment uh, in running this and sourcing the data. And the, to be honest, the biggest thing I find as a time investment is actually verifying it. And I've been speaking to a lot of people who who sort of trade data in these circles, and I'll I'll sort of say, you know, look, you've, for example, you've made a claim on Twitter or you've made a claim on some shadier website that, uh, you know, XYZ company has been breached. Did you did you check? And they're like, no, 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 we just put it up there. Yeah, it's too hard. (laughs) It is hard to actually verify if some data breaches are, are legit, but it's it's important as well because you don't want to go around making claims that. Uh, a particular organization's had a data breach just because someone's got a file with their name in it. You know, you've got to check these things. That's irresponsible reporting. I cannot agree with you more with that.
0: It's it's just as bad. You know, from the political perspective here, you know, we're in the election season. Um, you know, there. It seems like the most prominent candidate is an asteroid to wipe out the entire United States with the choices we've been dealt. But you know, with that. That kind of ties into my frustrations with yellow journalism in terms of uh, this is like half true about this candidate. We're going to publish it so that we can get the traffic, or you know, even better, clickbait. So, you know, I, I have much respect for anyone that's going to take the time and actually validate and verify that what they are posting is factual in nature, and it it's not going to unnecessarily damage someone's reputation.
1: Look, the, I think the clickbait term is is not at all disingenuous because often that's that's what happens. And I wrote something earlier this year after we saw news of, of something like 272 million email accounts from, it was a combination like Gmail, Hotmail, MailRU. And I think Reuters originally picked it up because someone had reported it uh, as an incident. And, of course, all the news headlines start running with, go and change your Gmail account now. And you're sort of looking at it going, well, hang on a second, like there's, there's too much stuff that smells here. And of course, it turned out that there was something like a tiny fraction of 1% of accounts had legitimate credentials because people reused them. But inevitably, they were coupled together from other sources and, and just exactly. couldn't in any way whatsoever be attributed back to, to who it was claimed to be from. And, and I remember hearing
0: about that. And, and I think that's, you know, I, if I recall correctly, I heard it on Security Weekly. Uh, because I do absorb a lot of my security news via other podcasts. I, I don't hide the fact that I listen to Security Weekly, Risky Business, Southern Fried, uh, BreakSec. Just because I don't mention the other podcasts I listen to doesn't mean that I don't like them. But uh, if I recall correctly, Paul and his team really took uh, the media to work on their podcast for that, for the you know spreading FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Mm. But at the same time, it's always a good idea to change your passwords too.
1: And it, look, in fairness, there are some media outlets that I think are doing a really good job. So Motherboard's been doing some great stuff. Uh, Ars Technica does some great stuff as well. And and I, I know the guys writing those stories and, and they always research these things and they put a lot of effort into into accuracy. Uh, I think unfortunately, particularly when you get to sort of the mainstream news and you get journalists that really aren't plugged into the fact that, that these things do get fabricated, Look, it's it's a great headline, but like you say, that's clickbait, right? Exactly, and honestly, you know, people, and I'm not hating on anyone with a journalism
0: degree, but people, <laughs> you know, the journalists, they're not necessarily trained, um, you know, just a general a, a general journalist that just does regular journalism, not a specific topic, or someone with a background in sports, you know, they're not going to have the understanding on how to validate things, and and they're not going to know the right questions to ask to make sure that the information they're getting is factual. And when you deal with sites like uh, Motherboard, Ars Technica, to some degree Wired, uh, CSO Online, and and those outlets, that's almost exclusively what they deal with. So, of course, they know the right questions to ask, and people aren't really going to give them garbage uh, stories either because they know they're going to get caught.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, but by the same token, journalists are meant to have journalistic integrity, right? Like they're meant to check sources and facts and things like that. And in these cases, it's it's just simply not happening. And I get that they're not tech journalists and they're not kind of plugged into the scene. But I just think there's a due diligence there that's missing on on their behalf, on the editor's behalf, where they're 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 just they're just not checking. But the other thing is that they're not held to account either. Which is kind of funny because if they're reporting on things that, that had, say, an, an impact on a publicly listed company and they got it wrong, then, then they could quite likely be held to account. But when it's just, you know, hey, some dark web character has popped up and said there's, there's been a data breach, there just seems to be very, very little accountability for it. Exactly. Well, I think a lot of that has
0: to do with the the business model that the media has kind of moved to. They've went away from you know charging a lot for advertisements um, in, in in the in the regard of they don't really have printed material to have the advertisements there and not everyone's interested in TV advertisements but the amount of revenue they get from people following their Facebook and falling for the clickbait going to their page and clicking the the links that that drives a lot of revenue for them and I think that really is what compromises that integrity it, it's the desire for revenue. But it's ironic because one of the headlines you hear at every news station in every market in the United States is, we keep the powerful accountable. Great, but they don't keep themselves accountable.
1: This is true. (laughs) That is a problem.
0: And and on that note, I'm going to step off of that soapbox. Um, So uh, going back to Have I Been Pwned, how do you get the information for the, the site?
1: So it really depends on the incident Um, and I I mean I'll give you a couple of examples. So say Ashley Madison, very very high profile incident, that data was torrented very very extensively, Uh, immediately it was obtained and inevitably even that itself is sort of an interesting observation because whoever broke into the system, their their objective was to make the data as, as broadly available as possible. So it's torrented, anyone could go and grab the torrent, it's It's still out there today. It's very easy to find. So, you know, that one's an easy one. In other cases, if we look at something like, say, LinkedIn, uh, the LinkedIn incident, so they were hacked in 2012. Uh, They thought they had it under control. Turns out there are 160 million accounts floating around. Not so good. Uh, Someone jumped up. This would have been in about June 2016 now uh, on one of these dark markets saying, uh, here's LinkedIn data, five bitcoins. Now inevitably uh, some people paid for it, some people redistributed it, I've got a bunch of people that support the, the project uh, and jump up every now and then and they say, hey I've just got my hands on, on um, LinkedIn or Myspace or any of these other big breaches, uh, yeah, you might like the data because if you add it to your system then people will get notified, they can uh, they can then obviously take precautions to protect themselves and, uh, and that's often how it happens. Um, there are times where where data is much more tightly held where people don't want to redistribute it there are times where people pay for the data for nefarious purposes uh, on the proviso of the seller not redistributing it um, particularly to people like me because they don't want uh, they don't want people finding out that their accounts are been compromised so it it's kind of many different channels and there are many people of various shades of grey getting towards uh, both the black and the white ends (laughs) of grey that that often send me this information.
0: Thank you for the irony there. I'm sure Patrick Grey of Risky Business appreciates that one as well (laughs) Um, since uh, we're not related, although uh, I would be interested to talk to him and find out. Uh, You never know. But Exactly. So The podcast that I recorded with Justin Seitz about the introduction to OSINT, it just went live. So do you really use a lot of OSINT techniques? Just to ask the question, do you really use any OSINT techniques to um,
1: get any of the data or any indicators of a breach or anything? I'd I'd say there's a bunch of OSINT uh, OSINT techniques which are quite useful for verification purposes. Uh, So, for example, I'll be looking at uh, who is chatting on social media about it. So is this something that's been circulating for a while? Uh, Someone sent me one just this morning, which is listed by a couple of websites as having been breached. Uh, I'll now go out and try and find where there are references to this. Uh, Has there been any company chatter about it? I'll also do things like um, look at the hashes that are in it. Uh, Are these hashes appearing anywhere else on the web Uh, and it's possibly been rebranded as something different? And just generally try and get a bit of a sense about um, who is talking about this, where might it have come from, is it legitimate uh, or, or is it a fabrication? So it's... Yeah, certainly there are, there are resources out there, uh, open source wise, which which are kind of kind of useful, uh, and and yeah, I've got to go through that today with this other one. That most certainly makes sense.
0: Um, so, sit tight. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the bigger leaks and Troy's advice to help you stay secure if you end up on his website. Sit tight. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistentsecuritynet
1: slash podcast.
0: Attention security professionals. Have you been looking for a community of only security experts? Look no further. PeerList is here. PeerList helps you stay on top of the news by creating personalized feeds where you get posts from your community and blogs from top industry bloggers, all customized to your specific interests. No more email lists to discuss a topic with other experts. You can invite specific people to any discussion as well as contribute to any discussion on PeerList. Build your reputation by creating a profile and contributing content that will help others see your expertise. The better your content is, the higher you rank. PeerList never gives your information to any vendor. You are not a lead. You are a professional. Check out PeerList today at PeerList.com. P E E R L Y. And we're back. Uh, I've got Troy Hunt here via Skype. And uh, we're having a conversation about his work with Have I Been Pwned? So we've talked about how it came about and where he gets the information. Now we're going to talk about some of the, the leaks that we're seeing right now, some of the characteristics, and we might even get into a little bit of a password manager discussion. So... Uh, Troy, tell us about some of the modern leaks, like some of the most recent ones you're seeing.
1: Look, I, I think probably the most recent one, which, which actually got a, a really surprisingly huge amount of traffic, both to my blog and to my site, uh, is Dropbox. Uh, in fact, the Dropbox one was really interesting because it's it's sort of in this class of uh, mega leak, as they're calling it. So we're in the tens of millions of accounts. Um, there are 68 million accounts in the Dropbox leak. Uh, leak, rather. It's also uh, consistent with some of the things like Myspace and Tumblr and LinkedIn in that it happened back in 2012, so it was actually quite old. Uh, so that was interesting. A couple of other things that made Dropbox uh, kind of curious was, uh, first of all, I was in there. Uh, I was in there, uh, my wife was in there, my father was in there. So uh, I think this is probably the, the biggest hit for my family, <laughs> personally. But what was interesting is that the accounts in there were split pretty 50-50 between email addresses and uh, bcrypted passwords and email addresses and SHA-1 passwords. And the interesting thing is that the SHA-1 passwords were salted, but the salt wasn't included. So good luck uh, actually cracking those. The bcrypt ones are obviously a much stronger hashing algorithm, but they do have that salt uh, and the work factor built into that that one string, which is ultimately what the bcrypt algorithms uh, emit. So uh, with that, I was able to take both my wife's and my passwords, which were 20-character randomly generated passwords, generated out of one password... And verify that yes, if I go and, and and all I did is I just created a, a password dictionary, uh, plugged it all into Hashcat, so it's just one record in a password dictionary. put uh, put it through the um, put it through the process and it popped out and it said yes, you know Troy's password is cracked. Here it is. It, it is that one strong password that I put in the dictionary. Uh, and the same for my wife's. So that was a, that was a really interesting sort of verification process because there was a little bit of ambiguity about is this legit? Is it not? Well. They're our strong password, not used anywhere else, and that they're proper strong as well. They're not phrases which could possibly be guessed. They were literally twenty of the most random possible characters. So that um, that sort of verified it. And I wrote a blog post that was just titled "The Dropbox Hack Is Real." Uh, that was getting hundreds of thousands of visitors a day. If I think I got, uh, I think I got nearly half a million visitors in one day. Read that actually, which was quite a big result. Uh, so there was that. And then, of course, um, huge volumes of traffic to Have I Been Pwned. Because when something like this happens, you, you sort of go from um, tens of thousands of visitors a day to hundreds of thousands of visitors a day, which does interesting things uh, to infrastructure. And then just as that was tapering off, uh, someone tried to DDoS me as well, which made it really interesting. <laughs> which is, I, I was
0: just reading about that, where you're doing uh, rate limiting to your API now.
1: Yeah, well, this sort of predates the, the, the malicious uh, volumes of traffic, but what I was finding was just large volumes of requests predominantly from Eastern European IP addresses, a lot from Russia, Ukraine, and then uh, across to places like even Iran and Pakistan as well. And I was just getting huge volumes of requests, and they just sort of fit a pattern that I wasn't comfortable was, um, was ethical use and I've got some terms in, in, on the API usage about, about what I consider ethical and responsible use uh, and what is not. And these guys obviously weren't consistent with that, uh, plus the fact that I'm sitting there on, on cloud infrastructure that auto-scales based on demand, uh, which means that I can absorb pretty much any amount of traffic, but it it scales after it sees the traffic. So if, if I go from, say, a, a constant 1,000 requests a minute to a, a sudden influx of 20,000 requests a minute, things slow down. So, you know, people get delayed responses, uh, some requests will get dropped altogether, and then the infrastructure will pile on and it will work. Uh, but now I'm paying money, <laughs> right? So, again, I pay for this out of my own pocket. So suddenly I'm paying for three instances of the server instead of one instance. And all of these things combined just sort of made me go, look, this is this is probably the right time to put a rate limit on it, and at the moment the, the rate limit allows one request um, every one and a half seconds, which means that if anyone wants to go through and, and check their organization's email addresses, if you've got, you know, a thousand of them, well, you know, no big deal, it will just take a little while to run. Uh, but if you're trying to go through and mass enumerate uh, some random email list, well, you know, now it's going to be a lot harder for you. So uh, I put that in place and, and obviously someone wasn't real happy with that, so they decided to start sending about 120,000 requests a minute, um, which... Yeah, it's, it's certainly not big in terms of DDoS scale, but when you've just got this little piece of infrastructure running, uh, that made life hard. So I did a bunch of stuff with that, which which I'd like to write about it at at some point when I'm confident that it's not going to then uh, put me at risk. But, yeah, we, we'll just say that's not a problem anymore and they can send as many requests as they like and, uh, and they'll get nice responses and, and it won't impact me at all. So good luck with that, guys.
0: Perfect so you you've kind of touched on it with password managers, and I did just recently write a blog post on Alien Vault about passwords, and you know the NIST uh, National Institute of Standards and Technologies just came out and kind of from a perspective of headlines, again with the the whole yellow journalism thing, basically undermined passwords as a whole. so let's kind of take the discussion in the regards of. Do you agree with the NIST recommendations, and then move into password managers and vault software type stuff? So, are you familiar with the NIST require or the NIST recommendations that came out? So, was this about SMS,
1: or this was a different thing from NIST?
0: Um, it was a little bit of both. So, it said don't use SMS for uh, two-factor authentication, but then it also said that there was. Uh, very little value in having complex passwords because uh, people couldn't remember them, so hence they wrote them down or made them ridiculously easy and just added one character or removed a character, changed to altered it, whatever.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, of, of course, I, th- I find passwords really interesting because we've sort of got this juncture of sort of technology and mathematics in terms of what actually constitutes a complex password that's difficult to crack and social issues which is yes someone's actually then got to go and remember them and i always find it really amusing when you look at say uh say a corporate environment and i think back to my my life in corporate and it would be okay guys here's the training everyone should create a long random unique password now go and do it and remember it <laughs> it's just so hang on hang on a second it doesn't work that way you can't do that unless you give people the tools to do it and i'm i'm a strong advocate of a password manager because that allows you to create long unique passwords uh, and actually have them genuinely unique which means that when we have something like this dropbox incident even though my bcrypt hashes are out there no one is going to figure out what that password is it just ain't going to happen so I think it's, it, is an, it is more of a, a social problem than a technology problem, but it is one that we can solve with tools like Password Managers.
0: Okay, so with the Password Manager... Obviously, you can set your passwords to ridiculous lengths. I've heard of some people doing 40 character passwords, 20, uh, basically depending upon the limitations of whatever they're entering the password in. And then obviously you can tell it symbols, numbers, upper, lower, et cetera. Um, what is your recommendations with that?
1: Well, I guess part of it is that it kind of doesn't matter whether it's 20, 30, 40, 100 because you're not remembering it anyway. It's just nothing more than a value in a field. And, And frankly, the biggest problem I have with password managers is overly onerous restrictions on websites. And I'll give you a really good example. I recently decided to change my PayPal password. And the only reason I decided to change it is I had to create a separate account. I didn't want to accidentally log into the other one. So I thought I'd just, you know, create new passwords. So I go in, change password field, uh, right click, generate new password from one password. I think I chose 30 characters. You know, job done. Great. Now let's log in and make sure it works. And it didn't work. (laughs) And I can't, oh crap, I'm I'm lost out of the thing that actually has money in it. Uh, Yeah, what am I going to do? And what I figured out was that uh, what they'd actually done is that the change password fields had a max char length of 20 characters. So it only took the first 20 characters that the password manager generated. And then you go to the login form, and there's no max password length on the login form. So my password manager was then giving it 30 characters, and of course it didn't match. And, And that's just sort of one... It's one stupid edge case, which is really, really common. Look, I mean, why paypal needs to limit it to to 20 characters in the first place and then inconsistently limit it across the board i don't know but that is the problem i i most frequently have that and the limitation of uh quote unquote special characters and really aren't all characters special but anyway i digress (laughs) Um, the the point is is that there are websites that actually make it hard to follow good password practices And, and that is the thing that that it's sort of the, the one thorn in my side about the practical use of password managers.
0: And you, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, there's a few websites I've been on recently that either says no special characters, uh, which I typically just hit the red X in the top right-hand corner when that happens, or alternatively, they limit you to, say, 16 characters. It's like, come on, why, really? Um but to kind of shift gears with that are are you familiar with some of the alternative authentication methods like uh for example clef so
1: the, <coughs> excuse me it's it, it's interesting i've i've seen a few different alternative mechanisms one of the ones that comes up a lot is steve gibson's um sqrl and i'll get emails from people and they go hey have you seen this it's awesome like you know this is great it's going to kill passwords and I, I, I sort of say well when was the last time you logged onto a site that uses it? And, and the answer, of course, is, is never. And the, the problem is is that all of the alternate mechanisms I've seen, including things like passwordless logon where they effectively just send you a, a, a reset link um, with, with a nonce, you click that and you log on, all of them uh, pose a barrier to entry. And the problem is, is that websites are enormously reticent to do anything which makes it harder for people to use their site and I often talk about this sort of canonical marketing manager. So this is the individual who wants to do everything possible to get people into their site as fast as possible with the least amount of friction. And the concept of doing anything other than the thing that everyone is so innately used to, even though it means reusing their passwords, the concept of doing anything different really scares these people because they don't want to pose a barrier to entry. Even with multi-step verification, which is why we see the take-up of it, is is usually in the single-digit percentage uh, numbers of the audience. People don't want to do things that, that make it harder to gain access to a site.
0: You you are 100% correct. And, you know, I'm not sponsored by Cliff. I, I think they've liked one tweet that I tweeted them in. But uh, Cliff, basically, it, it's an add-in that you put with your website, and you have to have your phone... Ultimately, you authenticate – I use an iPhone, so I authenticate with my thumbprint in the Clef app itself. And then at that point, I point the phone at the screen, and there's kind of a wavelength. And basically, the phone's camera and the computer sync up, and then the uh, token is passed to the website for me to get in. But with that being said, I only know of one site that uses Clef, and that's AdvancedPersistentSecurity.net. So um, (laughs) – I really wish more sites used it because I, I think it's really awesome. Uh, it's kind of a, a two-factor authentication in a sense, because uh, you do have to have a, a mobile device, um, but it's not necessarily two-factor in that regard. You know, you are using your biometric on the phone, and you are using your phone, but it's also not a password, so it, it's pretty awesome. I highly recommend checking it out. Um, do you have anything else to say about the browser's uh, data
1: breach that's uh, making its rounds right now? Well, you know, just the last thing on the, uh, on the password side. Look, I think things like that are really innovative, and we're going to try a bunch of different ways to solve this password problem that are not going to work, but they, they move us forward in terms of having the discussion. And the, the thing that I keep coming back to is, can I imagine, say, uh, my non-technical parents logging on like this? Uh, because if if it's not something that's going to resonate with them, then it's probably not something that's going to get any traction on the on the the vast majority of websites out there. So, possibly just something for for people to keep in mind when when they're looking at these awesome technical implementations: are they going to scale, and are they going to work across the broader society? Um, and that kind of just to
0: interject for one moment, uh, that does interject uh, and and align with Michael Santarcangelo's straight talk framework. You know, uh, the questions being. Uh, what problem are we trying to solve? Authentication, and how tall do you have to be to ride the ride? Or alternatively, uh, what do you define as readiness for this? And you know, as as a society, as as you know, a group of human beings, are we ready to use non-password authentication? You know, and that's going to be the major hurdle. Some things are really easy to use. Clef, in my opinion, is really easy to use. Granted, I'm more technically uh, uh, more tech savvy than some users, but just literally putting my thumb on something and pointing my phone at a monitor—that's it's pretty easy to authenticate.
1: I think, uh, particularly stuff like Touch ID, has has made authentication awesome. You know, and I, I love the idea of something uh, like biometrics whether it's Apple's implementation or others because it is security without coming at the price of usability in fact it's it's arguably enhanced usability and you know yes you can use gummy bears and some pretty you know nifty tricks to <laughs> to try and fake that but when you think about who the threat actors are for someone's phone and it's it's going to be the guy who picks it up on the bench or just takes it out of your pocket or something like that that's that's the vast 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 majority of risk uh, and i love the fact that, that that for me with my ios things i can be on the train and not have to enter my pin in front of people if i leave it there and someone else picks it up there's there's next to zero chance they're going to get into it unless they're nsa and even those guys have trouble with it <laughs> so i well, think that's a, I, that's actually a win win
0: i'm not sure how much trouble the nsa has with it oh um, fbi <laughs> well they they're, they're all in the same community but <laughs> they all talk. um it, it, it it all depends if they've uh, purchased um, the the um, trident.
1: Yeah, they, so what did they pay for that, like one and a half million dollars or something?
0: Um, something in that ballpark.
1: And it, uh, I, I'm actually cool with this, right? So I am cool with the fact that it is possible to break into an iPhone with Secure Enclave and all this sorts of stuff, if you pay one and a half million dollars, because that means they really, really want to get in there, and the person poses a really, really high value to, in this case, the FBI. And I don't have a problem with that because, if, frankly, if they got $1.5 million to spend uh, owning someone, there's a lot of different ways they can spend that money.
0: Exactly. And, and paying that much for a single exploit or a single chain of exploits, uh, that indicates that there's something, you know, if they're going to spend that kind of money, um, there could be a pretty significant reason for them going for it. Um, which, you know, Apple versus the FBI is completely in the rear view and I've, <laughs> I've been vocal about my opposition of uh, the FBI's tactics uh, I'm supportive of the FBI in, in principle but I don't believe legislating someone to create a backdoor was the right answer and uh, websites are saying now that uh, browsers was breached uh, up to 800,000 uh, accounts have been compromised uh, it looks to be from 2012
1: tell us some more Yeah, so first of all, if the term Brazzers is unfamiliar to you, go to Urban Dictionary and look it up. (laughs) Uh, Brazzers is a a porn site. Uh, I had a journalist approach me a couple of weeks ago probably now uh, who said, look, someone has given him this data. Uh, Would I be able to verify it? And one of the things that I've realised probably over the last 12 months is that I have the ability to do verification now that, that very other... Or very few other people um, have access to, and, and that is I have about 700,000 subscribers on Have I Been Pwned? And in a case like Brazz's, uh, I took those accounts, I, I grabbed just the email addresses, I whacked them in the database uh, next to my subscribers, and I said, okay, uh, which of my subscribers are in this breach? And then I, and in fact, at that time it was this alleged breach. And what I normally do is I'll grab the the most recent 30 subscribers to Have I Been Pwned, so people that have, have sort of got it relatively fresh in their memory, and, and often that that's only from a period of, of days back. And then I send them an email, and I say, look, you've appeared in a data breach. Um, I'm really after some help to help verify this is legitimate. Would you be able to assist? And what I'll find is I'll get a few quick responses and then a couple more over the next next few days. And I send them a portion of the data. And I say, look, uh, this is the website. This is a portion of your data. So, for example, if there's a plain text password, I might say, look, your password started with these three characters. And then I'll say, look, uh, yeah, were you on this site? Uh, do you recognize this um, this password? Uh, if so, could you give me the last character of it? Uh, and normally everyone's okay because by the time they see the first three characters, they know they've got it anyway. Though they know I've got it. But by me asking for a little bit of information back, it avoids any confirmation bias as well, where they're just saying yes to everything I ask. Uh, in, the, in the case of browsers, it's always a little bit of a delicate sort of discussion because it's just like, there's this guy on the web asking me if I watch porn. Um, you know, like, what, what do I say? But everyone who responded was actually very good. Um, they, they're normally very mature and, and very sort of honest about it. It's like, yeah, okay, I had an account on the porn site. That was correct. Uh, and, and that was that. So. I got um, probably half a dozen confirmations pretty quickly back from individuals. Uh, I normally ask them if, if they don't mind talking to um, to a, a journo, if, if the data has come by them or if, if I think they have something to add to the story. And several of them did. So I guess what it all boils down to is, is um, I've been able to confirm the data is accurate. The journalist also got uh, comments from browsers who confirmed it. They got comments from those in the data, so they've got some context for their story. And it's, it's all sort of handled as, as openly and above board as possible, and, uh, and, and that is, is what ultimately happened. It, it got out there in the news, 800,000-odd uh, accounts, and, and they're legit. Okay, sounds good.
0: Uh, final question here before we move, transition to the final segment. So we know Pornhub has a bug bounty program. Do you think uh, browsers will be following suit now?
1: It's a little bit kind of horse-bolted scenario, isn't it? So, look, obviously their issue has happened, the data's out, but the question is now do they sort of learn from this and say, well, maybe it's a good idea that we have a a channel which incentivizes people uh, to report ethically. I like the idea of of what Pornhub is doing and and really, uh, other than the the nature of their their site, they're in the same category as as the likes of Tesla, as the likes of of the Pentagon, uh, who run bug bounties. So bug bounties are starting to become pretty mainstream. I really like the idea of companies like Bug Bounty, uh, sorry, i got companies like Bug Crowd uh, who can do bug bounties as a service. So for the likes of browsers, I'd love to see them going to, to someone like my mate Casey Ellis who who runs Bug Crowd and just going, um, you know, hey, let's let, let's actually get a bounty running. Now, of course, they've actually got to be at a phase where they're not just going to get bombarded by issues and look at the fact that they're running old vulnerable forum software probably means they've got a lot of low-hanging fruit to clean up first. Exactly. But I really, really like the premise of incentivizing people to report ethically and even if there's not a financial motive. So even if you just go, look... We can't necessarily pay you anything at the moment, but we're going to have a published channel for you to submit. We're going to acknowledge that we want these bugs and we're not going to try and throw the book at you if someone pops up and finds SQL injection. Because this is one of the things people write about. Even today I've been chatting with someone who's like, there's vulnerabilities in this massive website with hundreds of thousands of customers or millions of customers, but I'm scared of reporting it to them in case something happens to me. And I can understand that sentiment, but then it means the company goes on with this vulnerability and someone far less ethical may well find it and exploit it.
0: Exactly. And um, I'm completely drawn blank there for a second. Um, exactly. And the thing that could come with this, a solution for, say, browsers, they could always follow the Chrysler model. You know, recently people were all up in arms because Chrysler opened a bug bounty program. They're the only American auto manufacturer besides Tesla – to have one, but they're only paying a maximum of fifteen hundred U.S. dollars, uh, where you have companies like Apple that's paying a minimum of ten thousand. So a lot of people were up in arms because Chrysler was paying such a little amount. But when you really think about it, if they're going to get through the low hanging fruit, they should do a period that is you know a low low value so they can get the low hanging fruit, and then whenever they mature a little bit more, they can move on to the bigger fish and start paying prices more commensurate with, say, Apple.
1: Yeah, I, I think that there's sort of a maturity model here where they have to sort of go through that cycle of getting to the point where there's enough financial motive for people to report ethically. Uh, look, Apple is almost sort of a, an unfair comparison. And, and from memory, the bug bounty they came out with just recently was up to like a couple of hundred thousand dollars or something. But, you know, they're talking about things like exploits of the iOS kernel, which, which have just significantly different ramifications to uh, I've found SQL injection on Chrysler.com or even uh, you know, I've found a, a really obscure vulnerability within the CAN bus of, of Chrysler vehicles. You know, there's a very, very different scale and, and commensurate oh, reward for that. definitely. But uh, I, I do think you've got to make it uh, worthwhile enough that people are going to report to you rather than just dump your data and put it on dark markets.
0: Exactly. Because you can they can do it ethically, which, you know, in, in all honesty, Apple is probably one of the highest paying bug bounties out there and it it is invite only. Some of the others, you know, some of the nonprofits they give you kudos or swag, but you know, you you've gotta work through that to get the, the, the low hanging fruit, you know, for things like you know, you're you're still using DES on your SSL certificate, for example, or something absolutely crazy like that. You know, because someone takes the time to to run that, you know, nmap script to test it and let you know. Okay, yeah, you should probably reward them with something, but I don't think a thousand dollars is really worth a, a simple nmap script like that. Is not worth ten thousand dollars or even a thousand dollars, really.
1: Well, is it a question of the effort on behalf of the researcher or the severity and potential impact of the bug?
0: I think you know to kind of draw um, a comparison to say biometrics, you know you have your your false acceptance rate and your false rejection rate, and when they cross, it's the crossover error rate. So if you apply that same principle, you know you can look at it from the perspective of how much damage could it do to the company and how much effort does it take to find it? and most importantly, how easy is it to exploit it? And at that point you you come up with your crossover rate. And that's where I would actually determine everything. If it's something that's relatively easy to exploit, but does absolutely nothing to the company, for example, a clickjacking vulnerability on a static site with no forms, okay, yeah, here, here's a kudo, mm. thanks. Um, if it's some if it's a cross-site scripting vulnerability that could lead to, say, remote code execution or privilege escalation. Um, that is really obscure okay yeah this is big somebody found it so obviously somebody else can find it so here's a lot of money or you know the absolute worst here's something that's ridiculously easy to find and it could take us down in moments okay yeah here's here's a hundred thousand dollars and where do we send your offer letter to hire you
1: so I, I think the overarching theme here is is that there's some sort of evidence-based um, payment that it has got to be commensurate to, to the nature of the risk and, and the, the impact of it. Uh, and, look, frankly, once we sort of get to the point where we're talking about how much are you going to pay in an established bug bounty that does pay people money, you're so far ahead of just about everyone else anyway, right? Exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, you're crowdsourcing your pen testing.
1: Yeah. Which, you know, you can still do
0: network pen tests, um, conventionally with, you know, the the key players with that. But basically you're, you're crowdsourcing your web app pen testing, and I think it's just a matter of time before we start to see crowdsourced uh, network pen testing even.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's it, quite possibly.
0: So um, with that being said, we're going to take our final break, and when we come back, uh, Troy's going to tell us how to contact him, uh, give us uh, as many shameless plugs for all of his projects as he can, and then we'll say goodbye. Stay tuned. Don't forget to check out our blog at AdvancedPersistentSecurity.net slash blog. Follow us on Twitter at ADVPersistentSEC and follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash AdvancedPersistentSecurity. And we're back. So uh, we've talked about all sorts of things such as the evolution of Have I Been Pwned? We've talked about browsers, password managers, uh, bug bounties even. We we did a little bit of current events in terms of Intel selling McAfee and the United States appointing a CISO. So, so the time has come for Troy to say goodbye. He's going to tell us how to contact him and uh, give us a, give us some shameless plugs. And Troy, the floor is yours.
1: Well, um, most of my things all sort of originate from Troyhunt.com. I'm on Twitter as uh, Troy Hunt. Probably um, the only other thing that might be interesting for some people, I'm in Europe next month uh, doing a bunch of talks. So I'm going to be in in Edinburgh at the uh, ScotSoft event. I'm going to be in... Um, where else am I going? I'm going to be in Copenhagen running a workshop. That one seems to be sold out now. But then I'm going back to London to do another one. So I'm doing a, a London workshop next month. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistence Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Security event. And then I'm coming home and going nowhere for the rest of the year. <laughs> so they're going to be the last chances for this year. Sounds good. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Um, do you have
0: anything else for us, Troy?
1: Look, I think that's the main stuff. Otherwise, I'll just be doing all the normal stuff. I've got, uh, I've got several Pluralsight courses that are finished that will be going live any moment. I've got another one that I'm, uh, I'm just writing up now, so there'll be more of that this year. And look, I mean, just the same old stuff over and over again. And uh, look, please sort of reach out, connect me, um, you me, know, ping me if people have got any questions. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on the show as well, Joe. Uh,
0: thank you for uh, being on the show. And with that being said, until next time, stay secure.